Well, good evening. It's good, to, it's good to be back, and it's good to be able to worship with you and, and gather around the table uh, with just a, another local group of, of God's people, uh, a family. The lovely thing, whenever you go to speak somewhere, you're going home, in a sense, in that you're going to be with your family. Um, and it's no different when I come here, so it's lovely to be able to do that. Um, and while it's a privilege to meet family, it's a privilege all the more to be able to remember Christ in the way that he set up for us, to remember the gospel, to remember the story at the heart of the gospel, that moment, that pinnacle moment of the gospel when, as Paul would put it, the son of God who loved us gave himself for us. And it's a privilege to think about that. And we could say that at that moment, when the son of God who loved us gave himself for us, everything changed. Nothing was ever the same again. And we could also say that from the moment that we heard and realized that the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us, that we could not possibly be the same again either. And so sometimes after a time around the Lord's table, I'm left asking that question, what's next? What now? This has happened and my life is different and it always will be. What now? What does the gospel-shaped life look like? What does, it, what does it mean now to live as a Christian, as one who is loved by God, who has received from Christ salvation? What is that? What does that mean? And to some extent, actually, the passage we're looking at tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is a what now passage. Paul tackles the what now question. So without further ado, please turn your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to read the first 12 verses of the chapter. Paul writes, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in, an, in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you, be, you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, sorry, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I wonder if you can tell me a few 
three word slogans or sayings that are quite common. Anyone, if, if, if you think of one that you've heard on TV or something similar, if we saw the Nike logo, what would we say? Just do it, yeah. Um, if we thought politics for a moment, you might hear something like forward, not back. Vote for change. Ambitions for Britain. Make the difference. Yes, we can. All three three-word slogans that have been carefully chosen to spur us on in a particular direction. And actually, the passage that we looked at, or that we that we look at tonight, is actually bookended by a, a three-word slogan that I want to keep in our minds just as we go through. And it's not about, and it doesn't sum up necessarily the idea behind the passage, but the commitment with which we should come to the subject matter. And it's this phrase, more and more. And some translations will say, abound more and more. But more and more, found in verse 1 and verse 10. Something needs to happen, said Paul, more and more. Now, last time I was with you, you were actually beginning your series on Philippians. And as you might remember, we soon realized, just opening the first page of that letter, that the Philippian church to whom Paul was writing might be described as an outstanding church, a model church, a church that by and large was getting it right, an example to others. And as you've gone through 1 Thessalonians, and I think you missed one last week, but you've spent some time in it already, you may have picked up that the church in Thessalonica falls into the same category. It's one of the churches of the New Testament that is commended because it is running well. And Paul highlights that time and again in our passage and in the, the preceding chapters. When he talks about the love of the church, he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, and in fact you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Clearly, this church is a loving church, a church in which Christian love has begun to bed in and has begun to, to, to grow and to pour out into the surrounding churches of the area. And if we were to, to go back to the beginning, we would find Paul is, is gushing joy at the way in which this church, this fledgling church, is performing. And what's striking, as we just begin our time this evening is to think about how surprising that is. Because the church in Thessalonica, by all human standards, should not have stuck. It shouldn't have made it. Three weeks after Paul founded the church, and we can read about it in the beginning of Acts chapter 17, three weeks after the apostle shows up in town and begins this church, he's run out of town, as is what seems to happen every time Paul turns up somewhere. Uh, he makes it a little bit longer by when he gets to Corinth, but even then he leaves. But Paul is run out of town after three weeks. He preaches the gospel in the synagogue, and then he preaches to the God-fearing people of the city, and, they, uh, and some turn. They're born again. They're filled with the Spirit, and this church is born, as it were. But Paul is kicked out. And the local believers come under attack by the population and the authorities pretty much straight away. A, a couple of years ago, uh, Ruth did a bit of an experiment in our back garden. We put in our first vegetable patch. 
and she decided that she would plant kale and spinach and chard, um, you know, all the things you really look forward to in a meal. Um, and um, anyway, the whole enterprise was a complete failure because almost immediately the local slug population turned up and used our back garden as a fast food joint. And the, 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 these seedling plants were just mowed down. And I was ever so sad about how that wouldn't end up in my, in my dinner. Um, but actually, humanly speaking, we would have expected the same thing to happen in Thessalonica to that church. But it doesn't. Riots, arrests, social pressure, persecution. And yet the church is still there. And in chapter 3... Um, we read about how Paul knows this. We read of Timothy's encouraging report. You see, Paul has been kicked out, and so has his mission team. But it seems along the way, and we, it, he, he sends Timothy back. Find out what's happened in Thessalonica, he says. And so Timothy heads back to Thessalonica, and, and behold, this church is still there. And they're worshipping God, and they're loving one another. And they're keeping to the apostles' teaching. And the thing that I love about this letter is that it shows that against all the odds, we can have, as Christians, a spiritual or a biblical optimism, a biblical positivity about how the gospel will succeed, about the victory that comes through the gospel. You see, sometimes we struggle in, in our Christian lives, don't we? We struggle to believe that actually this can go well. You know, sometimes we get very easily discouraged. I was struck, I was, talking, I was at our home group the other day and we were talking about the Ten Commandments, nothing to do with our passage tonight as such. Well, I suppose it is actually. Um, but, uh, but midway through, I realized that actually we were talking far more about God's forgiveness after we'd made a mess of, of trying to follow the commandments than we were about the fact that we had the Holy Spirit dwelling in our lives and we might stand a chance of keeping them once in a while. And I thought, isn't that how the, the rut that we so easily fall into but it's not the picture in one thessalonians the picture is things have started to go well and it is because of the genuineness of the faith the gospel that has taken root and actually we can see that in our world now i was uh, i was speaking to a friend who i'll actually be working with next year about his time visiting a missionary in angola after the troubles, and they were taking a, a ride through through Angola uh, to to the place where they'd be where they'd be spending most of their time. And the missionary kept looking out the side of the jeep, saying, "Oh, there's there's a church there. There's a church there. There's a little assembly in that road, all the way through." Um, and despite all these trials, all these fellowships had sprung up. Despite the war, despite the 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 damage, despite the carnage. That missionary was Ruth Hadley, who might, be no, might have been known to some of you um, a few years ago. She could testify to the power of God and the victory of the gospel. And it's an encouragement, isn't it? And we are to be encouraged by the spiritual victories that we read of in 1 Thessalonians. More and more, let's get started. More and more. They are to be more and more Christians. They are the real McCoy, as it were. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you, says Paul in verse 1, on how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. 
We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, says Paul when he's talking about the love that is shown in the church in verse 10. More and more Christians. So what are they to do more and more? What is the, the, the new creature that has been born there, the, the new creation Christian that has been born in that, in, in that Thessalonian church to do more and more of? Well, the answer is this. They're to be more and more holy. More and more holy. Paul insists that their chief aspiration, or one of their chief aspirations, should be to grow intentionally in a holy life and he kind of he he boxes them in a little bit in verse three he talks about uh, it is god's will that you should be sanctified sanctified simply means made holy and then in verse five he kind of gives us the opposite for god did not call us to be impure in other words god did not call us to be unholy there's the command to be holy and there's the command to not be unholy and between those two bumpers, you can't really get out. This is a huge priority. And they are two sides of the same coin. But Paul makes it clear that holiness is a wonderfully inescapable mark of true gospel faith. And there's, that's an immediate point of application for us, isn't it? Because holiness is not a word that we discuss as much as we should. You know, how often does our conversation after church center around our sanctification it, it doesn't really does it and i'm not saying that that's everything we should talk about but it's a priority for paul and it is a marker of the christian it's holiness seen as a bolt-on or an optional extra or a bit of a side project of our christian walk if it is we've got it wrong we are called to be holy says paul we are called not to be unholy, says Paul. And that's the big idea of our passage. It is that you and I, as God's people, where he has put us, are called to be holy more and more. To take intentional steps. To make sure that we are marked and set apart more and more for the work of God, for the glory of God. To walk in the wisdom of God. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. God is holy because he is completely set apart from creation. He is other than us. He does not require anything from creation. He doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands, Paul says in Acts, though he needed anything. That's why God is holy. And God's people are to reflect the holy God whom they serve. What is the gospel-shaped life? We talked about at the beginning, what does it, what now? What does our gospel-shaped life looks like, look like? Our gospel-shaped life looks like a holy life, says Paul. And that brings us, of course, to another question. How does that play out for you and I in our lives now? What does holiness look like? Because holiness, in, in a sense, can conjure up some very interesting mental images for us, can't it? You know, we wouldn't be the first to think of like a monastery or some kind of chanting or something like that. Something associated with very organised religion and people who are set apart only to be involved in that very organised religion. That is a picture of holiness that our world likes to paint. 
Another is something that is dull and boring. But what is it that Paul, that Paul says will mark us out as God's holy people? Well, he gives two main examples in, in chapter 4. The, the commentator uh, David Pawson put it this way, God says that holiness comes out particularly in women and work. Now, in reality, what he means is sexual ethics and earning a living in this passage. But what's really interesting is Paul begins in, in, this, in this passage about holiness to talk about romance, interpersonal relationships, brotherly love, the way we interact with one another, the way in which we should engage in our workplace, the way in which we should work for a living. You know, these things don't seem very out there. They seem very everyday, don't they? You know, they conjure up pictures of marketplaces, not monasteries. They are relevant. They are real things. They are part of everyday concern and everyday conversation. What Paul is trying to say is that sanctification makes li everyday life sweeter. That holiness is not a hindrance, but it's something that plays in every single day. And this shows us that far from being irrelevant and boring and dreary holiness is something that enriches and enhances life c.s lewis once said how little people know who think holiness is dull when one meets the real thing it is irresistible what does the gospel shaped life look like it's a it's a holy life the thessalonians are called to everyday holiness striving for holiness more and more every day in everyday things. And before we go into, into any more detail, that is a point for us to consider, isn't it? Is our mental picture of holiness everyday enough? Is it normal enough? Does it include your living room? Does it include the desk that you work at? May I even venture to suggest, does it include your bedroom? Paul says it does. Is it everyday enough? And so Paul picked pick up on this, on, on one aspect of holiness, and this is definitely not exhaustive. The Bible has a lot more to say on holiness than simply relationships and work. But he picks up on these two quite key things. And if you, if you pick up what he says at, at verse 3, we read that he begins to unpack what it means to live in a way that our marriages that are Views of sexual ethics reflect what he wants, reflect holiness. And so the, the first point I just want to make from, of application from this passage is simply this. Sexual purity makes the church stand out. Sexual purity makes the church stand out. What does Paul say? In verses 3 to 6, he unpacks kind of four commands, as it were. Well, they all lead on from each other. To avoid sexual immorality, to learn to control our own bodies in a way that is holy and honourable, to ensure that our actions are not driven by passion and lust like the pagans who do not know God, and to ensure that no one in their church should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister in the context of, of that, that, that aspect. And in keeping these things, 
It's hard to believe. But their holiness, their standing out from the world, their being set apart, would have looked utterly radical where they were. The ancient Greek world was quite similar in terms of sexual ethics to the way in which things are today. In fact, in a sense, it was probably worse. It was, it, it was a place that played fast and loose, particularly in a way that favoured men. And actually, that was particularly prevalent, history tells us, in Thessalonica. Temples often doubled as brothels. Marriages were something that you could slip in and out of easily. There was an influential man of the time named Demosthenes, and he was recorded as saying something that would, that would shock even our society. It would make most people in, the, in today's society blush. He wrote, We keep prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body, and wives for the beginning of children and faithful guardianship of our homes. Now, I don't read that out to make anybody blush, but I think it's really important for us to realise just how unusual what Paul is asking the Thessalonians to do would seem just how big of a turnaround in their view of marriage it would be, in their view on adultery it would be, just how much they are going to shine and how black the background is. What Paul is doing is setting them apart. What Paul is doing is marking them out. To the residents of Thessalonica, a Christian who shunned brothels and loved his wife would look as radical today as a Christian who safeguards their use of the internet to prevent themselves from indulging in online porn, despite the fact that it's seen as perfectly normal, or who remains married to the same person for their whole lives, despite the fact that that's seen as unnecessary and impractical. Christians then and Christians now, we are called to holiness in our relationships and marriages. And a community, a church community, in which women were safe from the overtures of men, in which, they could, in which men and women could mingle without fear of adultery, at the time was just unprecedented. Sometimes we don't realise how unprecedented the church is. Men and women, old and young, people of different ethnicities and backgrounds, people from completely different uh, working lives, all mingling together. You know, even in a church in, you know, in a place like Devon, where we have rural areas, there is so much more diversity between the people in that building than there would be anywhere else in society. We sometimes forget just how radical the church is. You and I are called to be to a radical life, a radical marriage, a radical singleness, whatever that might be. We're called, says Paul, to learn self-control so that we can honour God instead of choosing what will gratify ourselves. We are to put safeguards in place, says Paul, on our hearts and our habits. When you first invited me to speak here, I was assigned Matthew 19. We were reminiscing about it earlier. Um, and what that passage basically tells us in summary is have a high view of marriage and have a high view of what it is to be single. And don't play one off against the other. 
and don't suggest one is better than the other. But run af- whichever one you're called to, run after it with all of the strength and holiness that you have. And that is the same thing that Paul is saying here. But what we should expect is that that will lead to blessing, that that will re- lead to us standing at it as God's people. Self-control, says Paul, is a strength, not a straitjacket. We should take a high view of marriage, a high view of singleness, because the gospel-shaped life is a holy life. And that holiness extends into the most intimate parts of our lives. Otherwise, it's not holiness. And secondly, Paul then picks up on another huge thing in everyday life work one of those unpleasant forms of words or that's the joke isn't it anyway that's the joke but but says paul we shouldn't make those jokes because work is a good thing work has come from god work is something that has come before the fall but paul says they will show the, the thessalonians will show the work of god in their commitment to working it's an interesting one isn't it it might, it, and, and we've already talked about how the Thessalonians seem to have quite a good track record at this point already. They are, they are doing well in the department of brotherly love and looking after one another. Paul, as we've, uh, as we've already read, says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write, for you, write to you, for you, you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In other words, Paul was pulled out of the situation and the spirit kicked in and took over and reminded them of everything Paul had taught them. And their love has, has become known beyond their local church. You know, what, what an amazing endorsement. What an amazing encouragement that, that that must have been. A love that was known beyond the walls of the building in which they met. Beyond the group of people that made up that local church. And what this probably looked like was a bit like Acts 2 when the, the, the church in Jerusalem was born, that ground zero church, as it were. Luke writes, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And what Paul is saying, in, if we read between the lines, is that that's, that's happening. That's started to happen in Thessalonica as well. People have become Christians, and suddenly they've started to hold onto their, onto their possessions with a far looser grip than they were. They've sold what they have so that they can support other members of their fellowship. They've pooled their resources. No longer are they living for their bank balance. And Paul is saying, that's great, but now we need to look at what's next. More and more, you've been called to more and more holiness in your love, in in the way you live. And the thing that he then seems to see is that there's a particular danger coming up. And it may be something that Timothy's already spotted, we don't know, or he sees that it might become a problem. My sense is Timothy's probably told him. And the danger is that generosity... Christian generosity, Christian compassion, can both deliberately and accidentally be taken advantage of. Within a community where everyone is looking to support one another, 
it is very easy for some people to become passengers. And I think that Paul is picking up on that, on that possibility. And he sees it as a big problem because if that takes root, if the idea that we can perhaps be overly dependent on one another takes root, then it's suddenly going to be seen by the outside. The final words of our passage talk about, talk about the respect of outsiders. I think what's, what Paul is worried about is that some people in the Thessalonian church have given up their jobs and they are being supported financially and practically by others in that church. And there seems, there's, there seems to be some indicators of this. There's a, there's a whole lot about the end times in Thessalonians that we haven't talked about tonight. But it would appear from reading between the lines, and a lot of commentators would agree on this, that there was some confusion over when Jesus was coming back. And some of them believed they'd actually missed it and he'd already come back. And some of them thought he was coming back just so soon that they had to wait for him to come back and they shouldn't be doing anything else other than waiting for Jesus. You know, in a sense, they were just sat in the pew waiting. I don't know if you remember a few years ago uh, when I think it was I think it was one of uh, uh, one of the sort of celebrity teachers, John Hagee, predicted that, G- that the second coming would arrive and thousands of American Christians gave up their jobs and drove to the to the side of America where you can see the scene rise. And they were just going to sit there. And there's a sense in which that might be happening. No, says Paul, you cannot rely on everybody else to support you while you sit there doing nothing, waiting. That's not going to look good. The church might look good because they support you, but eventually this is going to backfire. So what, what does he say to them? In essence, the age-old other three-letter slogan, get a job. Get a job, he says. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Work with your hands is the ancient way of saying, get a job. Find something to do. Find something purposeful and practical. Find a way to support others so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. In other words, make sure that you're thinking of your brothers and sisters in your church before yourself. This is not, by the way, to say, do not rely heavily on your brothers and sisters. You know, the Bible is full of those, those two-pronged messages. It isn't to say that when you're going through the fires, you should not come to your brothers and sisters. It is not to say that the church is not a loving safety net for those who trip over. That is not what that, this is about. But what this is about is having the holy Christian maturity to make sure that you, in what way you can, are contributing to the brothers and sisters that gather in your local fellowship. Whatever way it might be, it might be financial, it might be with your time. Whatever it is, get on with the job. Mind your own business and get on with the job, says Paul so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Because if those outside Thessalonica, the Thessalonican church had looked in and seen them, seen them as a bunch of scroungers and sponges, that would not have been good for the witness of Christ. No, says Paul. 
grow in your maturity and make sure that you're about your business. Make sure that you are, you are aiming to be the person on which others can depend rather than the person that is always clinging on and depending on others. Again, I will repeat, I am not intending to give anybody any worries about this issue unless the Lord is speaking to you about it. Because it is important that as a church we hold one another up, that we bear one another's burdens. But, says Paul, our priority should be our brothers and sisters and not ourselves. There's a, one of our elders at Exmouth Chapel has a, has a lovely phrase. He says, Christians either eventually become pillars or they become caterpillars. Um, you, can, you can think that one through, but in, in essence, Christians either realize that they're to live life for one another and supporting one another, or they don't, and they kind of, I don't know, whatever caterpillars do, you know, chew on leaves where they find themselves. Um, but there's a sense in which Paul says holiness looks like hard work in this passage. What does a gospel-shaped life look like? It looks like a holy life. What does a holy life look like? Well, I, just, a, just as we close, it looks like gospel. It looks like Jesus. Jesus was not one to put his own needs before others. He, considered, he, he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. You know, when we, we don't take God's line on marriage, on sexual relationships, when we don't hold that up, what we're saying is, I come first. When we choose actively to rely on others when we could be strengthening the church ourselves, we are not putting others first. How does that fit with Philippians 2, I wonder? Therefore, Paul, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, and not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What does a, ho- what does a gospel-shaped life look like? According to Paul, it looks like a holy life. What does a holy life look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as your people and we come seeking your help to put into practice what you have taught us through the words of your servant, Paul. We come as those seeking more and more to walk in your ways. Lord, may we have that attitude more and more. We come as those who have recognized that we are called to a holy life because of the gospel that we have received and, been, and benefited from. And we come as those who have recognized that a holy life looks like Jesus Christ. 
it looks like what he did for us in the central story of the gospel. Lord, please help us as we go into this week, into the everyday moments. Please help us to work out what they look like in your holiness. Lord, may we be thoughtful, may we be intentional, may we be more and more Christians this week and all those that follow. May we seek to be holier than yesterday in such a way that is humble, in such a way that is loving, in such a way that considers others greater than ourselves. And in so doing, Lord, we just ask that you would glorify yourself yourself in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.